you know, if you were to imagine a graph, right, a sort of shark populations over the last 400 million years, you know, they've gone up, they've gone down, they've had some big extinctions, like when the dinosaurs did badly and things like that, but they are dropping off a cliff right here, right now, just in the last 50 years or so. Welcome to the Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week, from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our conservation tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Andy Cornish, thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks thanks so much for the invitation. Looking forward to the chat. No worries at all. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to hop on the podcast and talk about some sharks. But before we do that, can you please give the podcast a little intro on who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I work for WWF, World Wildlife Fund, based in Hong Kong. I have the pleasure of leading our global shark and ray conservation program, which is called Restoring the Balance. Okay. So how long have you been working in this space for? Seems like you've been doing this for a little while. Uh, I've worked for WWF probably for about 12 years now. In terms of just purely focused on the shark work, uh, about five years. Mm -hmm. Have you, why did you kind of decide to specialize in, in sharks? Was that kind of just, there was an opportunity there or have you always had like an extra interest in sharks? Uh, a bit of both, actually, uh, and a bit of luck, I have to say. I have to say. Uh, yeah. it, 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 is, it is a great job. So I did my PhD uh, in Hong Kong studying reef fish. So I was doing quite a lot of diving, surveying the reef fish on these small coral communities we have in Hong Kong. And, you know, you, you realize pretty quickly that there's very few large fish left. We have a, an overfishing problem like many parts of the world. And later when I finished and I was doing some teaching at the university, I did a little sort of side project on a species of bamboo shark that you find here. So basically all the reef sharks and the bigger sharks are just totally gone. They've been annihilated by overfishing. There's a couple of smaller species that sort of persist, and I was kind of interested on in how they were able to survive. So I uh, did a sort of side project. So that was sort of one shark-specific area. I'm, you know, I'm a keen recreational diver, underwater photographer, so I like to go on my holidays and dive with sharks where I can. That was sort of another angle. When I first worked for WF, I was a conservation director, so I was very general. You know, we did some marine stuff, climate change, freshwater. If Hong Kong runs a nature reserve, so kind of sort of wide gamut. When I left, I was actually involved in a, in a project helping sort of as a paid facilitator to, uh, at a workshop to get this global shark sort of strategy finished for WWF. And as I went out and walked to the airport, they said, by the way, how would you like to lead this? Uh, so that's sort of, how it, sort of how it came about, yes. Yeah. Okay, so the global shark strategy, that sounds interesting. Well, I think we'll touch on that a bit later on. And we'll also kind of go into a bit more detail with some threats and solutions, but I thought it'd be beneficial for the beginning just to give a bit of an introduction to what to sharks, I guess, give a bit of an overview to what they are. I mean, most people around the world probably have an idea of what they are, obviously. Yeah, they've, they've seen a few things on the movies, but the movies, to be fair, don't really paint them in a very kind light. Uh, and I imagine there's more to sharks than what we see in the movies. So can you give a bit of an introduction on what sharks are? Absolutely. And you, you've certainly highlighted an important point. I mean, I think sort of public perception of sharks is very negative, generally, and really sort of unjustly so. So 
let's come back. So look, they're, they're an ancient group of fishes. The first sharks evolved around 400 million years ago. Their close relatives, the rays, uh, evolved much more recently. So these are cartilaginous fish, so they don't have true bones as such. Their, their skeletons are made of cartilage, which sort of interestingly means they're very sort of poorly represented in the fossil records because cartilage doesn't fossilize nearly as well as bones. So, you know, a lot of what we know about sharks are just the occasional sort of fluke uh, where we do get fossils and, of course, their teeth, which do survive. So they've outlived the dinosaurs. So they're a very successful sort of mode of living they have. Most of them are, most of them are predators, the sharks uh, and the rays, you know, and they've been around a long time. They are present in most, mostly sort of tropical warm water species, but we do have a few species in the tropics. And, you know, they've evolved into many different species. I mean, incredibly, there's still a new species being found sort of what, every two weeks or so on average. Hmm. And at wow. this point in time, there's over 500 species of sharks and about 650 species of rays. Okay. Going back to that point on the fact that they have no bones, that's pretty interesting. Is there a reason for that? Is there like they've adapted that way for a particular purpose? Is So, you know, having cartilage as skeleton is a sort of more ancient form uh, of animal. Uh, the bony fishes, so that's the kind of typical fishes that we would typically eat, whether that's salmon or tuna or anything like that, they've evolved much more recently. You know, and when I sort of see sharks in the ocean, uh, I really do sort of see them a bit differently. I really see they really are these ancient creatures swimming in amongst other kinds of animals, and most of which are um, much more recent. Yeah. Okay. So going to the, the species, so there's over 500 species, and you're discovering new species every couple of weeks, did you say? Uh, not scientists, yes. So you're not you specifically, but science is discovering a species roughly yes. every two weeks. Where are they discovering them? Is that kind of just throughout the world, deep sea, close to the coast, pretty much a range of different places? Yeah, I'd say there's sort of three sort of main areas. So some of them are what we call cryptic. So actually, what when you people thought that, you know, that all these animals they were collecting were just one species. When people have actually used DNA, they found actually there's quite distinct differences in their different species. So they're cryptic because they're very difficult to tell apart. You know, and a lot of sharks have that typical shark shape. They're gray, you know, not, not that many of them are sort of brightly colored. So that's one kind. The deep sea, of course, yes, that's, you know, that's sort of the la one of the last frontiers. Um, and then just places that aren't well, so well studied. Uh, I was actually speaking on Friday to a scientist in India who's saying he's discovered five or more species because he's just looking in parts of the coast where there haven't been, hasn't been a great deal of attention before. Mm -hmm. Okay. So considering you've been, I guess, researching sharks for a little while, do you have any favorite I guess, interesting facts about sharks. Are there any, any facts that you've kind of learned that have resonated with you or stuck with you? Oh, lots. I don't, we could, we could almost do the whole, <laughs> do a whole podcast that. dedicated uh, to that. Yeah. That's, I think one of my favorites uh, is the Greenland shark. So because sharks don't have bone, they can be difficult to age. So with some bony fish, right, if you do like a cross section of the vertebrae, you can actually see rings like a tree. And sometimes that equates to years. So you can work out how old. Now, with some sharks, it's very difficult to do. And with the Greenland sharks, scientists found this really innovative way of aging them from proteins that were put down in the eye, in the retina of the eye that didn't change over time. Uh, and they found out that one of the female Greenland sharks was probably born around the time when Shakespeare was alive. What? Yes. How many years ago was that? Oh, I think a it lot was of about years. 400. Yes, 
within their range. It's just incredible. And that, that means that prior to that, it was a, a bowmouth whale that was thought to be the sort of the creature that lived the longest in the seas. And the Greenland sharks had overtaken that. You know, they're, in, they're quite big animals. They're in uh, sort of cold waters in the Arctic, so they grow very slowly. Yeah. Um, but just, in, just phenomenal. I mean, it's mind-blowing. Yeah, I've heard that they kind of live a long life, but I didn't realize. So that, so potentially 400 years they can live to. Well, Greenland sharks anyway. Green, they're, Greenland you're sharks. Average, you're average shark. Yeah, your average shark wouldn't live anything like that long. Yeah. And that's kind of linked to the fact that they're, they, they live in cold waters and they kind of grow slower. Yeah, very sort of slow metabolism. Yeah. They just have this very sort of slow, slow way of life, conserving energy. Okay, so coming back to the conservation part. So what does the current situation look like for sharks around the world? And how does this, I guess, compare to recent history? Yeah, so uh, pretty badly, unfortunately, is the, is the overall. I mean, we're definitely in a, in a shark crisis, and I would include rays within that. So and it's not actually helped by the numbers of species that we have, all of which are you know, sort of different in their own right. So unlike sort of lots of other biodiversity that's doing badly, there's really only one primary threat, or at least for the marine species. There are some freshwater species of sharks and rays that have their own issues, but it's, it's overfishing. So, you know, sharks on the whole, particularly the larger species, you know, they take a number of years to reach sexual maturity. Uh, some of them have very slow rates of reproduction, like a manta ray, typically only one young every two years. Spiny dogfish have a gestation of nearly two years. Mm -hmm. uh, some more extreme ones, they just grow very slowly. And they're just being overfished to hell. It's only really Australia and the US, I think, that are doing a pretty good job of managing, uh, managing fisheries that take sharks. One of the myths around sharks is that a lot of sort of fisheries that take them are illegal actually it's the complete opposite most fisheries that take sharks just have are completely unregulated unregulated are there some shark species that are like what are the most vulnerable shark species at the moment so things like uh sawfishes i'm going to talk about the sharks and rays together because they're sort of quite closely related um Angel sharks, uh, guitar fish. So these are sort of flat sharks that actually sort of lie on the seabed, but they have the classic sort of shark fin. Um, they're actually they're actually a species of ray, but they have that classic guitar, sorry, classic shark fin, and have some of the most valuable fins in the in the shark fin trade. Uh, so some of these species are being targeted. Um, others, it's just things you know, common fishing methods like you know, using a hook and line, using gill nets, you know, are very effective at catching sharks. And, you know, unless you have catch limits or protected areas, at some point or other, you're often going to get into an overfishing situation. Yeah. You touched on that before, but what is the biggest threat to sharks? So the biggest threat undoubtedly is overfishing. It's just in many cases, like unregulated fishing, sort of unmanaged fishing. So uh, fishing without any catch limits, fishing without saying you know any size limits so saying you can't keep the small ones or you can't keep the big ones okay so fishing just generally and doing that too much what what yes. are the different types of fishing though what are the different types of fishing that are causing more overfishing i guess so yes uh so on the high seas so the sort of areas you know of open ocean you know out in the pacific atlantic indian ocean the worst offender is long line so the sharks in this case are being taken by boats that are primarily targeting tuna, marlin, uh, that kind of things. And they put out these, as the name says, these very long lines that will have thousands of hooks um, okay. on them. They're probably, while, you know, while they're primarily 
targeting tuna and the like. In coastal waters, uh, long lines as well, uh, but certainly gill nets. All right, so these are these are the nets with the sort of floats at the top, the weights at the bottom. The fisherman would just go and put them out, you know. And it could you know, again, we can you know, could be kilometers. They just leave them there, you know, and sort of anything that blunders into the net uh, will mm-hmm. often get caught. Okay, so with the fishing, what's kind of the biggest driver for that fishing? Um, you mentioned there's there's tuna. There's is there like a part of the market that is driving most of this fishing? So the major drivers uh, of the overfishing of sharks uh, is definitely demand for their products. So uh, shark fin, uh, which I think most people are probably aware of, is used in a special shark fin soup in places in Asia, uh, like Hong Kong, where I'm based. Uh, but also demand for shark meat and ray meat, which is not so talked about. But you know, certainly uh, places like Australia, people will be familiar with flake, uh, which is sharks, um, and in Europe, countries like Spain, Italy, to a lesser degree, France or Portugal have a long tradition of eating shark meat. And then in the uh, developing world, you know, if we take somewhere like Indonesia, for example, so Indonesia is the largest catcher of sharks uh, and rays has been for at least the last 10 plus years. Um, you, you know, the shark fins will be exported, but uh, Indonesia exports very little shark meat. And that's because uh, it's consumed within country. Um, so either, you know, in the sort of villages, coastal communities near where, you know, the boats are pulling their catch on shore, um, you know, or some of it will be transported to the uh, to the cities. Okay. So in terms of the shark finning, is, do you find that it's trending kind of upwards or is it decreasing the consumption of shark fin soup? So let's, uh, let's perhaps deconstruct this a little bit. So uh, one of the misconceptions is around sort of what shark finning is. So that actually has a very specific is a very specific term which refers to cutting the fins off the shark at sea uh, and throwing the carcass overboard so okay. only bringing uh, the fins back to land that is sort of often perceived to be sort of the the, the biggest issue uh, facing sharks but that's really not the case uh, anymore a lot of countries and the organizations that manage fisheries on the high seas have banned that all right. So, you know, if you if you catch shark, you have to you have to bring the whole animal back to shore, uh, you know, and in places like Indonesia, people people would have uh, would have would have done that anyway. The big really some of the biggest issues with shark finning in the past were boats that were spending a lot of time, you know, offshore catching tuna and things like that. So, you know, the, the shark meat uh, is worth a lot less uh, than, let's say, tuna uh, or the fins itself. So the fishermen didn't want the holds filling up with sort of cheaper shark meat so you know they just fin the fin the sharks keep the the fins dry the fins in the sun uh, or put them in the freezer um, and toss the, the bodies overboard so that was has certainly an issue not such an issue now uh, in terms of shark fin and shark fin soup i think uh, in places like uh, hong kong some of the major markets singapore the data we have is that shark fin consumption is going down which is a good thing and the first three years of restoring the balance, we set ourselves a target of reducing shark fin consumption by 10%. And I think we were successful uh, in doing that. Uh, I would say that Hong Kong in particular, you know, we're still eating far too much per capita. The, the latest survey that we got done of consumers by an external company um, showed that seven out of 10 people had consumed shark fin within the previous 12 months, which considering there's been at least 10 years of advocacy by WF and other organizations here in Hong Kong, that was, uh, that was pretty, dis- pretty disappointing. So generally going down, but still far, far too high. And 
you know, 100% of all the shark fins sold in Asia at this time. It's either unsustainable or it's untraceable. So we just have no idea where it came from. Okay, so that traceability is a big, big issue. Absolutely. How do you go about, I guess, resolving that? Are there any, what are the biggest roadblocks, I guess, to keep track of that supply chain? Yeah, thanks. So it's very little traceability with shark products, at least sort of until recently. And, you know, it's a, it's a massive industry and it's difficult to imagine, you know, another aspect of the sort of global seafood uh, industry where there's just, you know, you don't know what the species are, you don't know what country it came from, and you don't know if it was legally caught. So it's quite uh, lagging pretty far behind, uh, you know, the sea, seafood industry generally has taken big, big steps towards traceability. So, I mean, you know, there's lots of uh, different sort of schemes out there. I think one thing that's been very promising is that, so CITES, which is the Convention for International Trade in Endangered Species, most of the countries of the world are parties to CITES uh, and have voted uh, in the last few big meetings, which happen every three years, to add more and more sharks and rays uh, onto one of their lists. Uh, which is technically known as Appendix 2. And Appendix 2 is uh, for sustainable trade. So countries have to show that they are catching and exporting any products from those species uh, on Appendix 2 sustainably and legally. And that's been fantastic. I mean, you know, there's a, most of the commercially important species uh, that are traded internationally are now listed on that. But there isn't a traceability system for that sort of you can just be lifted off the shelf that covers uh, sort of shark products, mm-hmm. um, but they've recognized this is a big issue. So they have a traceability system that essentially sort of covers a container, you know, or a shipment from one country to another. But once it's unpacked in somewhere like Hong Kong, it doesn't, uh, there's no traceability system. So there is work in progress to develop a traceability system, which is, uh, which is very promising. Yeah, but the, the CITES, you know, plays a, a big role in, I guess, improving the the management of those those fisheries and the trade in those products, but there's still work to be done. Yes, absolutely. So I think this is one of the most significant, you know, sort of positive developments of the the last ten years or so, which is which is all these species being listed, things like short fin mako and three species of hammerhead sharks and silky sharks and thresher sharks, and it's just just uh, some examples. So we were talking before, and you know, I mentioned that you know, a lot of the biggest issues around sort of overfishing are that countries are just not managing their, their, their shark fisheries, whether they're targeted or not. They're not, they're not sort of putting limits on catches and things like that. So what these CITES listings are doing is it's forcing the fisheries managers to make essentially a decision. So they can either just ban all the international export uh, and then comply with CITES like that, or they need to um, make sure that their fisheries are sustainable um, and that what's being exported is, is is sustainable and legal. So we are seeing, uh, I think it hasn't made much difference to the countries that were managing their shark populations well. And on the other end of the scale, there are countries which have, you know, you wouldn't believe how little data they've got on the sharks in their own waters. So working out what's a sustainable catch, uh, they are some years away from that, but are starting to collect more data. But yeah, there's some countries like Ecuador, Mexico, Sri Lanka, which are really trying hard to make this work. And, you know, starting to head in a direction that will mean that they can uh, much more likely to have sustainable fisheries in the future. Just on that, what is the incentive for those countries to kind of partner with CITES and hop on board a program like that? Like, What's the incentive there and what are the, the consequences, I guess, if those countries don't meet those standards? Like what does that whole thing look like? Gotcha. So, uh, 
most of the countries are parties to CITES, which means they've signed up to this. It's, any, it's a United Nations uh, convention. So uh, once countries vote to add another species on, you know, whether it's sharks or parrots or pangolins or whatever it is, then they essentially have to follow, you know, they have to follow the sort of uh, CITES provisions. So even if they voted uh, against listing a particular species, um, they can do it. They can do a technical thing called a reservation, which means that they say they're not going to follow it, uh, but it doesn't look good. And most countries sort of try, uh, try to make it work. I think one of the sort of interesting things is that adding sharks to CITES was heavily resisted in the, in the, the first time it really sort of came up. Um, but countries have more come around thinking that this is actually something that can help them with their sustainability of their fisheries. And I think most countries recognize that you know their, their shark fisheries are, are sort of not well managed and you know populations have declined so you know if things don't change there's only really sort of one outcome which is that you know populations of most species will just get to very low levels and then you know whether it's from an ecosystem whether it's a value to tourism whether it's a value from eating and trading their products that value is just totally gone mm -hmm. um, so there's a very clear lose-lose situation there, which, you know, I think people want to avoid, you know, and conversely, if you, if you have a future where you've got healthy populations of sharks and rays and, you know, you are able to, uh, to fish them sustainably, then, you'll, you know, the country and the ecosystem will get all the benefits from that. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Like the people listening to this podcast, their driver is obviously there's ecological importance for these sharks staying around, but there's also economic benefit to keeping these sharks around as well, whether that be through tourism or or other means, there is this, if it's unsustainable, it's unsustainable from a environmental perspective and also economic perspective. So I think that economic part will grab the attention for, from a lot of the governments and decision makers, I imagine, more so than the other, or, or is that not the case? Uh, no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely yeah. right. If you can't make a, an economic argument to government, it's it's typically much, much more difficult to get a conservation outcome. Mm. Yeah, that's one thing I'm quickly learning is you need to, I guess, position these arguments in a way that it makes economic sense for the people that are ultimately making these decisions. And yeah, that's quite important. I mean, it's not very romantic from like a lot of people's perspectives. Like they want to, you know, we should be saving this animal because you know, either it just deserves not to die in the first place, which is fair enough, but they have a, they play a role in the ecosystem, but that isn't a, isn't a necessarily an attractive argument for the people that uh, are managing a country. But that kind of segues to my next question of why are sharks important to protect in the first place? Like what are the different reasons for that? Yes. Great question. Let me, let me just circle back to that just quickly so mm -hmm. in the sort of sustainable fisheries side of things i mean is, is super important and i think you know for for your listeners you know a lot of these shut these fisheries have been going on for a long time and you know we haven't been able to to convince uh decision makers you know to protect their animal these animals you know just because they're ancient or because they're impressive or because you know we just think they have an intrinsic right to live so we have to really doing it just from on that sort of basis hasn't been successful so we really need to try and it's sort of economic side of things the livelihood side of things is uh, is really important as well but you know there are species that absolutely just need to be protected we shouldn't remotely be thinking about fishing them sustainably so i talked to you earlier about this uh, the fact that we're in a shark crisis well you know even just the five years that you know that i've been working on sharks and we've had this 
global WF program, things have deteriorated pretty badly. I mean, in, in sort of 2014, uh, around the time we started, there was a really important paper that came out that found, for example, that 25 sharks and rays were critically endangered um, out of the thousand or so species. That's now gone up to 42 species. So 25 species critically endangered, which is one step away from extinction up to 42 you know, and populations just continue to decline. So those species that are, you know, endangered, critically endangered, we've got to find ways of stopping these species getting extinct, going extinct. Um, we shouldn't be fishing in them. Absolute full protection, marine protected areas for critical habits, that, that's those kind of, that side of things. So, and, you know, again, it's just overfishing, overfishing. So, you know, reducing the amount of fishing and controlling it is just super important, whether or not we're trying to achieve sustainable fisheries or you know, we're trying to stop species from going, going extinct. In terms of the value, the sort of um, the other values, um, I think you know, most people have, uh, have heard at some point that, you know, sharks are uh, apex predators, sort of sitting at the top of the food chain. Uh, that's actually only true um, for a handful of species. And sort of, in, I just sort of think this is in, interesting uh, as an aside is that, you know, where you tend to have orcas, uh, so killer whales, mm -hmm. um, they tend to be the, the top dogs in the ocean and, you know, they can even take a, a great white shark if, the, you know, sort of if the, if the mood takes them, there's actually been some instances of that in South Africa, which have been kind of interesting, but yeah. so not that many species are the, actually the apex predators, but most, almost all of the species are predatory and, you know, there's so many species, so there's sort of a thousand species of sharks and rays, they're in you know, most of the, the seas in the world, apart from some of the sort of very coldest, uh, and they're often present in quite large numbers. So, you know, they're having, and don't forget as well, and see in the back of your mind that these are, these animals have been there, you know, purport, you know, performing their sort of ecological roles since before, uh, the bony fishes sort of evolved. So, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they have collectively, they have a sort of really important role in sort of maintaining the, uh, the health of ecosystems. Mm-hmm. Quick question back to the fishery management part. I remember I was listening to a video um, that you were in and you were talking about this idea that that bycatch should potentially be redefined to a secondary catch. Can you elaborate on, on, on that? I guess the, the bycatch uh, and secondary catch, like what's, why is that a potential issue? Yes. Happy to do this. So, Let's let's try and keep this fairly light, not not too technical. But I think this is a really important point, and it's a real bugbear for me about uh, about shark fisheries. So there are some fishes fisheries for sharks that are targeted. All right. So the fishermen are going out; they want to catch sharks. They're using the gears to catch sharks, and that's that's really what they're focusing on. At the other end of the spectrum, you know, we've got fisheries. Let's say a trawl or a prawn fishery uh, in Australia, uh, quite well regulated. They really are targeting targeting the prawns because they're dragging this net across the seabed, they will get some sharks and rays, but they really don't want them. Uh, and they'll typically sort of throw them back in the, in the sea. Now there's a big range of, uh, so that's, that's sort of very clear bycatch, that particular trawling situation. But there's a lot of fisheries out there that sort of fall somewhere in the middle. So, uh, and let's, let's talk about tuna. We were talking about long lining for tuna mm -hmm. uh, earlier. So, those fisheries, yes, they're primarily targeting tuna, um, but if you put out thousands of baited hooks in the open ocean, you're going to catch sharks, and the fishermen know full well that they're going to catch sharks, and if they can keep the fins, if they can keep the meat, that's all part of the economic model of the fishery, right? It's no surprise. Uh, likewise, uh, in somewhere like Indonesia, uh, Malaysia, you put out a gill net, 
you know, whatever you're trying to catch, you're bound to catch some sharks and rays uh, as well. Uh, they're not going to throw them back. That's not an accident. You know, gill nets by their nature catch a wide range of species. Um, and that's sort of what the fisheries are targeting. So the reason this is so important is that that gill net and longline example, um, the fishermen will say that it's bycatch. All right. And the regional fisheries management organizations that are responsible for tuna uh, refer to all shark catchers bycatch as though it was some kind of accident uh, mm -hmm. that they caused and it wasn't deliberate. All right. That's much better, to, much more, uh, I think, uh, on the money if you say it's secondary catch. So, you know, that acknowledges a yes, okay, it's not the main thing they're targeting, but they know they're going to target some, they know they're going to catch some, and it's all part of the economic model. Once you realize that, uh, it becomes much more difficult to use bycatch uh, as an excuse for not managing fisheries that take those sharks and rays. Okay. And so the ones that declare it as bycatch, they still monetize those sharks somehow. They still make a profit from it, don't they? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So it's, it makes sense um, from a business perspective. In terms of, I saw on your website that up or on so the WWF, that up to 100 million sharks and rays are caught each year. Does that include direct and indirect um, like death right. of sharks yes. by humans or is that just direct deaths, if that makes sense? Uh, that's, that's an estimate of all sharks caught. Okay, so that would include the bycatch as well. Yes, totally. Okay. Um, quick question on the shark fin soup. I've got a question about, I guess, how you manage conservation action around shark fin soup because a lot of it tends to be linked to cultural traditions. And to me, that seems to be, like, obviously from a conservation perspective, these problems need to be addressed. But at the same time, I imagine there needs to be some cultural sensitivity around how you manage that and how you have that conversation out of respect as one reason but also from a practical reason um, if you I imagine both parties need to be on board to make these changes in order for that to be uh, sustainable so how do you um, manage that because I imagine that can be quite a complex and tricky situation yes and obviously you know particularly for myself as a as a westerner so you know, I, I actually remember very clearly. So we, we started, WF Hong Kong uh, started working on uh, sort of shark fin advocacy to consumers and, and restaurants uh, back in 2007. Uh, and we were very, uh, I just remember those conversations very clearly. You know, we were saying this is not a, we've got to be very careful here, right? This is not a, uh, this is not a sort of Western versus China, Chinese, uh, you know, cultural issue. Uh, this is a sustainability issue. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, arguments that you hear people saying sometimes, not WWF, I hasten <laughs> to add, people saying, well, it's got no soup, you know, it's got no flavor, it's got no nutritional value. You know, those are not valid reasons for people to be consuming, to, to persuade people to stop doing something which they're doing for cultural reasons. You know, we eat some pretty strange things uh in western in the western world i know caviar foie gras where okay maybe they've got some nutritional value but you know that's to totally totally missing the point mm -hmm. um so we've always been very clear i i think that you know it's it's an issue primarily um because it's unsustainable because of overfishing uh the species are doing badly oceans are doing badly because of it and really sort of sticking to those uh, the factual side of things 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so positioning it as purely this is a sustainability problem and that kind of transcends all these other elements of whether it be culture, nation, race, religion or whatever it may be. The issue is this is a st- sustainability um, problem and we need to work collectively to try and address that. Yes, and you know, a clear you know the, the the science and the facts are very clear that we are heading towards the you know the lose 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 situation mm. we talked about before you know it's just indisputable so even if you are uh you know you're a lover of shark fin soup you know you have to recognize that it's going to become more and more difficult for to that uh, for you that. to continue uh, to do that in the future yeah that's actually yeah that's quite interesting this lose lose scenario whether you're coming from like an angle of I want to save this shark for conservation purposes or I want to, you know, I enjoy shark fin soup. If we head down this current path, both parties lose. Yeah, that's yeah, quite that's an interesting right. angle. Yeah, you know, and I, th- I think, I hope that that is uh, one of the areas where we get common ground, uh, sort of no matter where you come from. So, you know, if you were to imagine a graph, right, a sort of shark populations over the last 400 million years, you know, they've gone up, they've gone down, they've had some big extinctions, like when the dinosaurs did badly and things like that, but they are dropping off a cliff right here, right now, just in the last 50 years or so. Um, and, you know, I said there's 40 species critically endangered already. You know, do we really want to be in the situation in 50 years time or, you know, let's let's say in our lifetime in the next 20 years or so where we go, well, you know, we were knew, knew they were doing badly, but we didn't quite do anything about it. And yeah, you know, God knows how many species have gone extinct. Uh, and this place that used to have shark tourism doesn't have shark tourism anymore. The fishermen don't have that livelihood mm. uh, option. You know, we've lost or just lost all the value. And it's just insane when you look at it from that perspective. Yeah, I mean, you, you you said at the beginning there's over 500 species at the moment that we know of, and they've been around for, say, 400-plus million years. And at the moment, 40-odd of them are critically endangered, which is close enough to 10% of all the species around at the moment. So even that blows your mind, this idea that almost 10%, 10% of the shark species that have existed for 400 plus million years, they're at risk of extinction uh, is, yeah, it just blows my mind. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> yeah, not, not, in, not, in a good, not in a good way, obviously. And, you know, so the, 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 the math is slightly off, sorry, because the, that figure is sort of sharks and rays, so there's about a thousand species of those, but there's another 57 that are endangered um, okay. which is one one step behind so i mean actually at the end of the day it's uh, it is it is about 10 percent, you know and most populations are going down so this is only going to get worse and worse unless we can get in a uh in a place where we can actually you know start to recover the populations that are doing very worst and really make sure they don't go extinct on our watch and address all these other fisheries so that you know other populations don't get anywhere near such a such a sort of perilous situation and i think it's worth talking a little bit about um uh what happens when uh what the typical sort of response is when populations get uh, get very low so uh whether it's on the high seas or whether it's uh countries what typically happens is that uh, a species will get put on a you know protected species list uh that means that you uh that it's illegal to catch that species 
um, you know, or to sell it or trade it and, and things like that. And at this point in time, this is an, another one of my bugbears, that's often the end of the response. Now, I'm sure you'll have picked up in our conversation, well, we've got long lines and gill nets out there uh, that, that are, you know, not necessarily targeting the sharks, but you just put on species on a, you know, you, you, you say that you can't catch this species well they're still going to catch it right mm. uh, and you know they may well be dead by the time that they're brought back on the boat so you know and you'd be absolutely right as a management response it's part of something you need to do but in many situations that's not going to stop uh the overfishing it's not going to recover the population probably i would say in the majority of cases that's just going to mean it takes a bit longer before they go locally extinct mm. So we need a lot, lot more focus in the shark world on recovering populations, being very deliberate about saying, you know, what does it need? What will it take to actually get that populate to get the overfishing so low that uh, the population will actually start to increase again? Okay, so on that, what are some conservation strategies and solutions to a protect sharks, but also to recover the population? I think the there's sort of two things that can be done. Uh, in parallel to start off with so okay. you know if you've got uh, if you've got a fit you know a, a situation where you have a very well managed fishery great enforcement um, and everybody's sort of following the rules then uh, you know possibly putting in um, those kind of bands might work but I think one of the other things we need to do is we need to find out what are the really the most important habitats for a particular species um, and then either can com- you know, can try and completely eliminate any of the kind of fishing uh, that might catch that species. So let's give a, give it a, a sort of practical example of uh, scalloped hammerhead sharks. So uh, the scalloped hammerheads, the, the, the female will give birth to live young, uh, and they often come quite inshore uh, and, you know, give birth to live young in and around estuaries, mangroves, um, because those small hammerhead sharks will actually be eaten, eaten by larger sharks, right? They need protection themselves when they're small. So, mm-hmm. you know, if we protect those nursery areas and those pupping areas, things like that can actually help, um, you know, make sure that more of those young will actually survive to be adults uh, and have a chance of, of reproducing. So that's one thing. Um, the other thing is in the sort of surrounding areas, uh, trying to find ways that these multi-species fishing gears um, won't kill uh, so, uh, so many, it's, it's, you know, it's often in, sort of not realistic, unfortunately, to actually sort of get rid of that fishing gear completely. But for example, with, with, uh, gill nets, there's some really interesting trials at the moment using led lights. And the idea is that if you attach these led lights, uh, you know, let's say every 10 meters on a gill net that for certain color frequencies, and it seems to be maybe red or ultraviolet for sharks, that the sharks, you won't get so many sharks caught. They seem to avoid the net or avoid the lights, but the fishermen will still get uh, as much of their uh, target species, the, the other kinds of bony fish that they were, they were trying to catch. So that's, that's called sort of bycatch mitigation. Okay. Um, so we're sort of really, we really want to see more of this protecting of the critical habitats and then reducing uh, using bycatch mitigation um, in the areas around those. All right. I, I imagine there must be some resistance as well to these bycatch mitigation strategies because, as mentioned before, often this bycatch is part of their economic model. Do, do you find there is a lot of resistance or is it kind of like a, a bit of a mixed bag now? 
Well, you've, you've actually hit the nail. You actually hit the nail on the head. I mean, the technology side of bycatch mitigation is, you know, it, it can get quite technical and, and tricky, and we just don't have solutions for for, for some things. But uh, it's actually that's more straightforward than persuading uh, <laughs> the people to get on board. Is it? Yeah, look, and I think with the sort of experience, um, and this is something I've really learned from, you know, our our officers that are sort of trialing this kind of stuff, is there's sort of two kinds of motivation. Firstly, um, for the fishermen to use it in the first place. Mm. Uh, and look, if there's no regulations on catching sharks at all and no focus on it, why is a fisherman going to you know, exactly. pay any attention? So there needs to be some sort of, you know, limits on the catches of sharks or protected species status or something like that where the fishermen are supposed to be following. Um, but the other motivation is, you know, continuing to use it. So, you know, it may be that fishermen are willing to give it a go, um, but if the overall uh, income that they're deriving from the fishery goes down, um, then it's unlikely, even if you give them the gear, the fishing gear for free at the beginning, uh, it's unlikely they're going to continue to use it. Now, let me, let me give you just an example of how, how this might work. So mm -hmm. for some of these places where we've been using the LED lights, it seems that actually their catch of the target species has gone up a bit. Ooh. So so that might be a situation. I mean, we don't want to be contributing to the overfishing of something else, <laughs> right? Um, but that might be that might be an example of a way where the fisherman says, okay, I'm catching less sharks, which isn't great for me for my income, um, but I'm getting more of the target species uh, instead, so that's fine, and I'll stick with it. Yeah. I mean, like you said, that's not really, um, you know, ideal if they're maybe catching less sharks, but they're catching more of the fish. But it's, it's um, I guess I think it's important to just understand why people would be encouraged or motivated to make a change. And for these for these fishermen where it's all kind of commercial based, they would only, unless there's rules kind of putting pressure on them to make changes, only, they would only make a change if they can see a, a personal benefit in doing so. If there's some kind of financial gain in making this change. And if they can make some financial gain through using these LED lights where they'd catch less sharks but more of their target fish, then there may be an incentive there for, for them to make that change. But just that whole psychology around why that why why would someone make this change in the first place is, is quite important in terms of um, designing these solutions, right? Absolutely. And you know, I think one of the one of the the challenges, if you're looking at you know these sort of issues globally, is it's they're very difficult to scale up. You, you know, the motivations of people in so different in different places. You mm. know, the, the regulations are different in different countries. So uh, it's not like you sort of crack the motivation piece and then you can just sort of roll it out everywhere. Apply you really it in all to, cases. <laughs> yeah, it's no uh, no sort of one size fits all all that motivation. I'll give you one other example that was quite interesting though, which was. Okay. Uh, um, I visited a really uh, remote Indonesian uh, village where our Indonesian office was doing a project on it. And that particular village, they were um, they were just catching uh, small reef fish using very fine nets, mm -hmm. uh, and the reef sharks were just punching holes in the net because they were so much bigger than everything else. Um, and in that case, uh, the fishermen really didn't want to be catching the sharks, and they, their nets were being ruined um, by the by the sharks just going right through them. So they were quite keen to find a way of you know, keeping the sharks away from their nets. Um, so, I mean, it's an unusual example, but um, yeah, just to give you a sort of feel for different kinds of situations out there.
Yeah, well, that's also important. Just this idea that there's many different situations and there's many different scenarios, and yeah, like this idea that there is got to be one solution that is ideal in all cases is probably a bit hopeful and wishful thinking. But I think it's important just to acknowledge that it's just that's just the reality of the problem, and it's complex, and it's going to take like a nuanced approach to to fix it over the long term. Um, on the on your website you've got the sharkulator which i think is quite an interesting piece of technology can you talk about that um what that is and how you come up with these calculations so you know from the early days of wf starting to work on uh shark fin and persuading people you know not to serve shark fin at their weddings or persuade you know let's say hotels not to not to serve shark fin uh our communication communications experts will always say well okay but how many sharks would we save if they did that uh and great question obvious question and we just didn't have the answers to it we made uh an attempt around god it was more than 10 years ago now to sort of work out a, a process where you could come up with that number and you basically it's a sort of series of conversions right so uh, you need to know how much shark fin is in an individual bowl of soup. Uh, and then you would need to know, um, well, okay, if it was like a dried processed fin, how much of that weight would be. And then if it was uh, a fin that just been removed from an animal, how, and you're just sort of working back actually through the process of how that bowl of shark fin soup was sort of created uh, in the first place. But we just couldn't find uh, one of the conversion factors um, and then more recently found it. Um, so basically, uh, we use primarily blue shark. Um, there are, well, there must be at least 50 different species in the shark fin trade, but blue, sh blue shark uh, is by far the most common species uh, in the trade. Uh, and the shark, the sharkulator, which we released a couple of months ago, um, you can basically type in uh, the amount of bowls uh, of shark fin soup, uh, and it will tell you how many. Uh, how many sharks uh, you've saved so just to give you a feel for that the 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 sort of drum roll moment was uh 100 bowls of shark fin soup is a equivalent to about 12 sharks on average and and that's did you mention that this the shark fin soup is often part of like different ceremonies uh weddings is by far the most common uh, event okay. type so a, a chinese wedding banquet you know, and it's not uncommon to have, uh, you know, two or 300 people. They're, they're large events. Yeah. Um, so, you know, 200 bowls of shark fin soup, 24, 24 sharks. Yeah. Okay. And I, I think it's good to put a number to these things because that helps just helps people just process that information when there's, yeah. when there is a number. Yeah. It makes it more tangible, right? You know, you can actually, it actually means something. And, you know, if you, if you think about 24 sharks all swimming around in a school, I mean, that's quite an impressive uh, quite an impressive site. So we've just, you know, we're not just keeping this in house. If you search the WF Sharkulator, you'll find it very easily. And we're really encouraging people to think about, um, you know, using it themselves. I mean, if you're, uh, you know, somebody and you've got a relative who's thinking about having a, uh, you know, a wedding banquet in Hong Kong that's going to include shark and soup, well, you know, you'd be able to tell people how many sharks they could save by by not having it. If you're a company that um, does an annual spring dinner for your staff and you think about serving shark fin soup then, 
you can calculate how many sharks you'd save if you're a global hotel chain and you decide to stop serving shark fin as i i'm happy to say most have mm-hmm. um you know you can actually work out how many sharks you're saving so it, i think it's a you know it's a communications tool but we're really encouraging people to think about um yeah taking it on board and using it themselves yeah definitely um is this, so this is available on website it's not an app or anything it's just via the website yeah it's i mean it's such a it's such a simple little calculator yeah um Yes, it's embedded in a few websites. Okay, Roger. I'll, I'll check that uh, that link in the show notes. We're nearing the end of the podcast. I've got a few closing questions, but is there anything you wanted to talk about before I go into those final few questions? Well, I think maybe perhaps I want to build on a, a point that we sort of started ex- exploring, um, which was sort of around people's perceptions of sharks. Okay. So certainly in the Western world, um, perceptions of sharks i think have been you know very harmful to shark conservation uh in the sense that uh you know so the sort of first image that often springs to mind is this sort of bloody teeth coming out of the water big jaws chomping um and you know the the amount of sharks that have been sort of implicated in shark fatalities it's you know it's less than 10 out of the uh, less than 10 out of the 500 or so species of sharks. Uh, if we look at the, the, you know, the numbers of, uh, you know, individuals, uh, numbers of fatalities. So we talked about, let's say, very roughly up to 100 million sharks killed per year. Uh, the number of human fatalities, uh, you know, it's too many, but it's around six per year. Mm. Uh, and you know, if I was to say, so let, let's ask you a question. What, what, what animal do you think kills the most people per year? What animal? Yes. Hippo? Mosquito. Uh, so, yeah, you're, you're on the right wrong <laughs> mosquito. So, obviously, a malaria, you know, yeah. transporter malaria. Uh, if you look at what animal directly kills people the most, it's actually snakes. Oh, is it? So, the global estimates around twenty to 60,000 people killed per year. By snakes versus six per sharks. I mean, you know, when was the last time you saw the front page of the paper saying somebody had been killed by by a snake? Uh, the you know the, the the media it seems just can't help themselves. It gets uh, the when- clicks. It grinds my gears. It's just such an easy. I guess the the fact of Jaws the movie and you know, other movies out there. It just seems to be an animal that can the media can exploit for extra clicks. Because I've got the yeah, teeth, I've got, you know. That's right. It's you know, it's unfortunate. You know, even like a shark sighted close to somebody, you know, will will, you know, get surprising number of yeah, hits. Lines. And even sensible, even even otherwise sensible articles about sharks, you know, you look at the picture and they put with it, and you've just sort of gone, you guys just can't help yourselves, can you? It's that whole sort of clickbait. Uh, you know, yeah. I'll get my clicks because it's a because it's a shark. So it's. Uh, it's lazy. It's it's really damaging. Um, and there's all kinds of weird, wonderful sharks out there that are just so different from the, yeah. uh, from that. And I, you know, I think the that perception is getting in the way of the urgency uh, mm. that people, uh, you know, m- much more need to hear just how bad things are yeah. with sharks at the. And if, you know, like anything else, right? Governments make most of their decisions based on what they think the public cares about. Mm. Uh, if, if people, if governments don't think 
that people care about sharks, you know, whether it's because they like to eat them or, you know, because they want to conserve them or whatever, they're just not going to put the management in place uh, to control this overfishing. So that's, uh, you know, if you were to ask me what's the one thing you'd like to see uh, in global shark conservation, it's urgency. We've got to be acting now. Yeah. Um, we, you know, the point is here, right here, right now. Most of the stuff we know how to do from a sort of technical side of things or, um, you know, sort of behavioral change stuff, but we've just got to get the urgency into the conversation that, that so mm. badly needs. Yeah, I think that perception of sharks is a big one. And I think a lot of people just, you know, a lot of people may not just understand that, you know, these movies and you know, these these headlines that we see on the television, you know, how detrimental they can actually be to ultimately conserving sharks i mean i watched a, a video last a uh, couple of nights ago um, with a big astrophysicist um neil degrasse tyson and he um had a show and he brought on a shark expert and i was very surprised actually someone quite high up in you know the the science scene he kept he kept bringing up this idea of you know sharks are scary sharks are you know i don't want to hop in the water because sharks are gonna you know, bite my fingers off. And I was, I was watching that and I was like, do you understand that that actually isn't helpful to, uh, you know, this, the shark scientist that you're bringing on here, she's, she's working towards ultimately learning about them and saving them. And, and what you're talking about is actually quite, quite harmful because it just feeds into this narrative of them being these, these killers. Yeah. So this perception thing is, is huge. I think um that 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 drive that urge that perception drives that urgency if we perceive them as being these these killers then they that will inform you know this lack of urgency yeah t t totally I, I think um one of the things we want to do uh if we haven't quite got around to is actually doing sort of um public perception studies uh, around you know of the public on sharks uh, you know, I'm utterly convinced that in the Western world that Jaws has, uh, has lot, done a lot of damage in, you know, developing countries where, you know, coastal communities where they've always, you know, grown up around sharks and just seen them in catches and things like that. I suspect it's quite different. I suspect mm. Jaws hasn't quite uh, <laughs> uh, had the same impact Influence. because people are getting, you know, getting information about sharks from a lot more different sources. But it'd be fascinating to do. Yeah, that would be very interesting, actually. Um, the perception of sharks from a range of different, you know, places around the world. Yeah, very interesting. And, and getting some insight into what informed that perception as well. Because I imagine like a lot of places, you know, Australia, America, a lot of people I, I think would bring up movies like Jaws and there's been a few other ones recently. Yeah, very interesting. Um, okay, so how can the general public help save sharks? Well, I think... Um most obviously you know sp spread the word i mean if you if you listen to this podcast uh you know and sharks come up in conversation later on i mean uh, hopefully there's a um <laughs> there's some nuggets in this conversation that you can sort of share about you know the need to need to be conserving sharks uh and this sort of lose-lose situation that we are on a on a very clear trajectory towards um in most places you know if you are <clears throat> Uh, if you see shark products for sale, uh, we generally ask that you avoid them unless you know you know they are, uh, you know, sustainably sourced. And you know, it may it may well be in, 
you know, countries that we uh, that manage their sharks better, like um, the US and Australia, that they are actually um, from sustainable fisheries. Um, you know, avoid shark fin, shark teeth, and things like that on uh, on holiday. And you know, certainly, uh, you know, you see squalene products uh, on sale quite a lot in um, pharmacies. You know, as a sort of um, for either sort of health or uh, sort of beauty products. Well, squalene comes from uh, liver oil. Uh, it's sort of refined liver oil from sharks. Uh, and the species that have the most liver oil are the deep sea sharks, uh, which are, you know, some of the slowest growing um, and therefore some of the most you know, easily overfished species out there. So I would certainly uh, stay away from those kind of, um, you know, pills and other sort of squalene products. Um, again, unless you're pretty sure they're from sustainable sources. So what was that squalene? Yes, S-Q-U-A. L E N E, and that's used for. Is that has a range of different functions? Yes, uh, okay. it appears in cosmetics. Uh, it's used as sort of sort of a health supplement. That's the scary thing about these things is just the ingredient list of a lot of these products. Like you just once you dive deep into the ingredient list of you know certain food products and beauty products, just what you find in there is just ridiculous yeah uh, i know okay <laughs> well that's good to know because that's the first time i've heard about that particular one so from liver oil from from sharks and and uh deep sea sharks specifically they have more of it yes because because uh sharks don't have swim bladders to help them keep them buoyant um they uh they have these large large livers so the oil because oil is lighter than water, actually helps them keep helps them, them. Uh, buoyant. And because they're in such a deep sea, they need particularly large livers because of all the pressure on them. Ah, interesting. Okay. So we've got some, some tips there for the general public. How can people connect with you online and learn more about your work? Uh, yeah. Well, for those of you who use Twitter, we have a, a dedicated Twitter handle. So it's uh, WWF underscore sharks. Uh, look out for us there. We uh, have a website where we publish sort of quite uh, sort of news and um, sort of stories from the field about what our various teams are doing. Um, if you just look up um, Sharks Restoring the Balance, you should be able to find that fairly quickly. And, you know, uh, get involved. I mean, if you know, if you live near the coast, um, you know, there may, may well be organizations working on shark conservation. Maybe you can volunteer for them in different ways. Uh, if you're a student, you know, maybe there's intern, intern opportunities, uh, you know, there's, you know, one of the great things about the world today is a lot more opportunities to get involved. Mm. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity to get involved e either online or offline. I, I think with the, you know, with the internet these days and social media, it's kind of, it, there's so many options now to either raise awareness, um, kind of bring up these these points about education and shifting perception, you know, there's, there's a role to play, whether that be online or offline. Um, so yeah, getting involved is a big one. Um, for the last question, what message or thought do you want to leave the listeners of the conservation tribe? Sharks need your support. Um, you know, they're these incredible ancient creatures that are in, you know, an incredibly perilous state um, at this point in time, you know, and, you know, unfortunately like other, you know, a lot of biodiversity is suffering at the moment. You know, we really are at a uh, at a crucial sort of tipping point 
um, in you know in global history. So um, you know anything you can do to get involved, um, make you know you can really make a difference. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again, and I will see you in the next episode.